Well, very good morning to you. It's precious for us to gather together on the Lord's day and to be able to open up and hear the Lord speak to his church. I invite you to take your Bible and open to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 is where we find ourselves for this Lord's day. As obvious, our pastor is away ministering this morning. We remember and pray for him. For us, it's our privilege to gather together to come study the Lord's Word. We look to Him and ask Him for His help. If you're taking notes this morning, the bulletin says the message is entitled, An An Antidote for Anxiety. You know, after giving it some more thought, we could scratch that, reverse it, and instead give you the antidote for anxiety. For this is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking. Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. Let me read through the passage to set that in our mind. We'll go to the Lord and ask for his help. And then for the time that we have, we will work through the passage and seek to learn and understand what is this antidote for anxiety. Matthew chapter 6, this is God's word. Verse 25 reads, For this reason I say to you, Do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, Will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Father in heaven, we come, we bow before your majestic, sufficient, supreme word. By means of this passage, help us to taste and see that you and your word is good. How blessed is the one who takes refuge in you. Speak, O Lord, we, your servants, listen. We ask this for our Savior's sake. Amen. These are soothing words to read. 
but difficult words to put into practice. So began Charles Spurgeon when he once preached this very passage, and we certainly appreciate his honesty. These are soothing words to read, and yet admittedly, quite difficult to put into practice. For have you noticed? Anxiety is everywhere. Anxiety is endemic to the human race, and yet it appears a pandemic that has afflicted those in the world, and uniquely striking of all groups and all communities, it appears anxiety is an epidemic amongst professing Christians. This ailment has many names, anxiety, worry, fear. Perhaps it's dressed up a bit, concern, unease, tension. To go out into the world, one might be diagnosed with a disorder, GAD, generalized anxiety disorder, SAD, social anxiety disorder, to be diagnosed with a panic disorder resulting from panic attacks or be labeled in some other way having a phobia-related disorder. Not to minimize, not to take away from this issue of anxiety. It is a malady of the mind, but no doubt bringing about effects upon our physical bodies. One Wrestling with anxiety can recognize how crippling this ailment is, how draining it can be, how affecting it can be for our lifestyle. Again, bringing about even manifestations on our own physical bodies. One wrestling with anxiety, one uh, stressed with worry, the heart begins to race with heart palpitations. Perhaps blood pressure is increased. One wrestling with anxiety might have trouble breathing, perhaps suddenly feeling quite hot, even lightheaded. One wrestling with anxiety can begin to have stomach pain, stomach discomfort, even have general issues with digestion. And then when one tries to lie down for sleep, they search for sleep but often can't find it perhaps having insomnia. With all of these realities, thinking of it and even wrestling with it himself, John Calvin once said, those who are anxious wear themselves out and become, in a sense, their own executioners. Don't believe me? Ask the mother of a newborn child. Ask the father trying to provide for his family in today's current economic condition. Ask the average teenager with all the oversaturation from social media, newfound stresses that have arisen. Ask the individual staring down the medical emergency, staring down some unexpected financial challenge. One wrestling with anxiety to go out into the world, no doubt the world would seek to help, but the help that they offer 
doesn't really bring change. The world would have you believe, in a sense, here is a disorder. You have to learn to live with it. You have to learn to cope with it. It's as if by means of the label, they send you into a lifelong stay in palliative care. An unending hospice care, seeking to manage these symptoms as you still wrestle with this very real issue. Yet amidst this confusion, our Lord speaks up. He speaks boldly and emphatically that for his children, there is hope. There is even relief. That this need not be an ailment you wrestle with lifelong, but there can be conquest. Indeed, here in this passage is the antidote to overcome anxiety. How practical, how necessary this is. Indeed, we parachute this morning into the Sermon on the Mount, the most majestic sermon preached by the greatest preacher who ever graced this earth. How he begins the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus Christ, not just giving tips and uh, wisdom for how to go about life, but very clearly in Matthew chapter 5, demarcating Here is the kind of person who will be and is in my kingdom. You're not born naturally into this kingdom. You must be born again supernaturally into this kingdom. And if you have been, the character outlined in the Beatitudes, one who wrestles with their sin, hungers and thirsts after righteousness. Here is someone who belongs to this kingdom, and then he will explain, here is what it is to be in this kingdom. Here is what it is to live in this kingdom. In fact, as chapter 6 will tell us, here is how you live on this earth in this kingdom, which is where we find ourselves trying to make sense of this life, trying to go about this earthly existence. And here he explains, here is how you can live for and honor your Father who is in heaven. The beginning of the chapter, he'll walk through, don't go about as a hypocrite, but from the heart, be real, seek the Lord, seek his honor. The necessity for prayer, don't pray like the Gentiles, but follow the pattern I prescribe, praying our Father who is in heaven. And then lest we think this is all just spiritual, hot air, oh, he brings us into the nitty-gritty in the section just before You have needs in this life. You're looking for income and for wealth, and you wrestle with material possessions. Here's how you ought to think about it. In fact, the verse just before, he'll draw again the line in the sand. You can only serve one master. And with that temptation towards materialism, he will say, you instead must make God and serve him as your master. But isn't it interesting, having just talked about material goods, material items, money, wealth, that it's as if he anticipates the very thing you and I wrestle with. Worry, anxiety about our life, maybe about our possessions. Thus, here comes the antidote. 
the antidote from our Lord for anxiety. As J.C. Ryle once said, here is a striking example of the combined wisdom and compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ. He knows the heart of man. Do you sit here this morning wrestling with this very real issue, the malady of the mind known as anxiety? All the different manifestations of it, no matter what season or station in life you might find yourself? He offers this hope. He offers this antidote for the child of God. An antidote that we'll find in this passage explained threefold. That again, must be self-administered. Unless we forget, place yourselves back in the shoes of the audience as they hear this Sermon on the Mount. They very much wrestled with this issue of worry and anxiety. Life in the ancient world was a challenge. Living day to day was often a struggle. Where do you lay down your head? Where do you find food? Where is your source of income? To them, by extension to us, he will begin to present his most thorough prescription. In fact, this morning, he will even have us look it straight in the eye. You notice as verse 25 begins with the clear command, do not be worried about your life. Here's the issue. Worry, anxiety, being anxious for. The term captures exactly what it's like to be anxious, to have anxiety. It's as if inwardly one is distracted, one is even divided. Competing thoughts enter in, competing concerns rise up, and it's as if they begin inwardly to pull one apart. In fact, even to pull one down how they begin to harass, how they begin to torment, how they, in a very real way, attack. And he says, do not be worried. Do not be anxious. Let me clarify with what he says. It's not the way one older translation puts it, where it says, take no thought. He's not saying here, stop thinking. Thought very much is commended. We are to think, but we're to be careful that we don't have wrong thinking. That's what he's after. Nor is he condemning forethought. No, very much. We need to look ahead. We need to plan wisely. The rest of the scriptures make that manifestly obvious. But he says there's a particular thought, this wrong thinking, these concerns that begin to pile up. What are they about? Well, he says about life, your life, your soul. More particularly, what will you eat? What will you drink? Nor for your body, what you'll put on. I mean, let this be a reminder, the Bible is never uh, expired. It's always ripe in what it says. Are these not the things you and I wrestle with? Speaking directly to that, he proclaims, do not be anxious. Again, this isn't just him uh, setting up the power of positive thinking. 
He's not here simply going to tell us how to cope, what playlist to set on repeat, you know, uh, don't worry, be happy. Not that. No, he's going to be direct with us. He is the stern physician. We may not like what he has to say, but we need to hear it. Again, how often we take this very issue and we begin to come up with excuses for it. We rationalize it. We explain it away. We chalk it up. It's just in my family genetics. It's just a personality trait. I can't help it. He says, no, you can. You must. Again, like like young children receiving the medicine, we may not like the taste of it. We want to spit it out. We want to look for some alternative method. But he says, no, no, this is the antidote. This is how, as a child of God, you and I are to begin to address this issue. What is the antidote then? Again, I said it's threefold. It begins first with him telling us, stop. You want to begin to address this issue? You want to begin to make some victory and have some conquest over this real matter? He begins by telling us, first, look at it and say, stop. We hear that and we say, yes, but no, he says, stop. Three times in the account, so clear, this direct command, verse 25, do not be worried. Verse 31, do not worry. Verse 34, do not worry. In fact, the first time he says it in verse 25, it's said in such a way, you are anxious and you must stop. These anxious thoughts begin to set in. It's as if we're all seated at the table and these concerns begin to dominate the conversation. They're allowed us at the table and he says, you have to look it in the eye, stand up and declare, stop. You're not my master. As a child would proclaim, you're not the boss of me. I'm not trapped. I'm not a victim to this. He says, listen, what is it that's to be marshaled? Again, not wrong thinking, but right biblical thinking. Stop, and he asks, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? What is that you're getting at, Jesus? Oh, it begins to put forth an argument. He's quite logical in this antidote. And the problem here is not that we're thinking or thinking too much. It's that our thinking is wrong. In fact, our thinking often, it's built into believing a lie. He says, look at your situation. Look at yourself. You're concerned about your life. You're concerned about the next day. You're concerned about your possessions and your income and your food and drink and how you're going to clothe yourself. You're concerned about these bills. You're concerned about your health and diet and medical condition. He says, take a step back and look at your life. Who did that? You got a pulse? You have a body? How'd that happen? He asks. Answer, obvious, God. 
And Jesus reasons us through the issue. If God has given the greater gift, life and body, he reasons, will he not then provide the lesser, easier gift? Food, drink, clothing. He's done the greater act, he reasons, will he not provide the lesser gift? The lesser act. He's given life, will he not sustain it? Jesus reasons. And so he commands, stop. Again, from his lips, this is a command. When you and I violate this, when you and I disobey this, the Bible puts this in the category, this is sin. Yet does he not, when he gives commands, grant grace to help us obey? and overcome, and make headway against our sin? Oh, very much he does. And he says this is where it must begin. Not to continue on with it, not to accommodate it, but again, to finally stop, to draw the line in the sand, to look the issue in the eye, and by the grace of God, not listen to yourself, but say to yourself, stop. Second, he tells us, see. See what? Oh, again, we go back to that scene there on the mountain, Galilee. As he's giving the sermon, it seems as if some birds have flown by, and Jesus points to them, and as the object listen, he says, do you see them? Look at them. Stare at them. Gaze upon them. Think about those birds. What are we to think about them? Well, he says, they don't sow. They don't reap. They don't gather into barns. In terms from the agricultural process. There in Galilee, those in the crowd would be familiar with this. It was a region known for wheat and barley fields, different than other areas, southern in Judea, more hilly with various crops. I mean, these were people who understood what it is, the whole process for sowing and planting and reaping and harvesting and gathering and storing much like you and I today, except we just use different terms or images. It's as if he tells us today, do you see those birds? They don't make the Costco run. They didn't uh, set up their Saturday morning for a trip to the farmer's market. Do you see those birds? They don't have a fridge. There's not a second fridge and freezer in the garage. There's not also a deep freezer for them to use. He says, no, no, they don't do any of that. And yet amazingly, what does he tell us? Your heavenly Father feeds them. That's what we have to latch on to. He says, day to day, you watch these birds. How insignificant are these birds? And yet the miracle, day to day, they find food, they're fed, they're cared for. And he says, how did that happen? Process of nature? Laws of science? 
or the direct provision of a God and creator that he says is your heavenly father. Oh, very much there's someone behind it all. Someone who, as he has said earlier, if you are part of his kingdom, he's now brought you into his family. Who very much is mindful of you, who's redeemed, who's reconciled and adopted you into his family, giving you all the rights and privileges of someone who is his child. Someone who now at any moment, at any time, in any place can look up and pray, our father That he says, this God, who is now your father, he is out and about constantly feeding the tiny little Tweety bird. You see again the logic. He flips it. It's not the greater to the lesser. Now it's the lesser to the greater. If he does the lesser act, the lesser item, he's caring for and tending for the tiny little bird. He then reasons, how much more? Are you not worth much more than they? Answer, yes. And again, let's again be clear here. The bird is not lazy. The bird's not passive. You know, the baby bird might act one way, but the adult bird doesn't just sit there with its beak open waiting for God to drop the worm into its mouth. No, it uses means. It's very much active. And yet, God behind it all cares for the bird. And Jesus reasons, are you not worth much more than they? We've got to begin to bring in the right biblical thinking here. He says, stop, and he now says, see. Look at those birds. Are birds made in the image of God? No. Did God send forth his own son in the likeness of birds? No. Does God save and adopt into his family a whole flock of birds? Answer, no, but he did for you. Oh, he cares for them. Will he not also care for you? As William Tyndale stated, he that cares for the least of his creatures will much more care for the greatest. Or as the English pastor John Barrage stated, does he feed his birds? And will he starve his babes? And he's wanting to help us. We may not like the medicine, but this is the time-tested prescription that he gives to us. Take this issue of anxiety. First, stop. Second, see. See what? Your father cares. In fact, we can go back, stop, and reflect. Your father knows. And see, your father cares 
And again, we might want to hold on to that wrong thinking. We might still want to accommodate this sin. That's why Jerry Bridges would refer to it as a respectable sin. How common it can be even amidst professing believers. We, we answer back. We talk back. But I have concerns, and they're very real. And Jesus poses, verse 27, Who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? He's very practical and natural here. He says, you're worrying. What has that gotten you? Has that helped? Has that added anything to your life? In a way it has, but it's only added trouble. It's added pain. It's added difficulty. He wants us to see that. And even as we take this step back and reflect that my father knows and my father cares, even to think I'm made in his image, if I've been saved and I'm now his child, this God who is my father has a grand master plan and I'm now caught up into that. I'm now part of that. As older Christians would often say, particularly George Whitfield and even J.C. Ryle, you are immortal until your work for God is done. There's nothing that you can do that's going to add to that life. There's nothing that you can do that's going to take away from this life. All your time are in the Father's hands. Every day has been written according to his perfect plan. And he's wanting to bring us back. Don't go to that place for security. Don't look to anxiety as the help and the savior. Stop, he commands, and see, he says. He gives us another object lesson. And he brings up the issue. Why are you worried about clothing? Again, practical necessities of life here. The world then is different than it is today. You and I could make our quick trip over to Haynes Mall and take care of that issue. The ancient world was different. Sure, if you were wealthy, maybe you had multiple items of clothing, even able to have colors with uh, clothing with bright colors like purple and scarlet. Expensive dyes would be needed, so you got to be wealthy to have that. The average person, though, Probably not many items of clothing. Maybe an extra cloak that really would function as your blanket if you were to lay down in the field for sleep. Again, he's looking into the face of this crowd. This crowd, they're there. They're facing this very issue. He says, look at the birds. Oh, see now, look. Do you see those flowers? He says, observe the lilies of the field. The wild flowers there on the hillside. We wonder when he spoke this. Maybe since he is pointing to this, it's springtime. There in the spring, there would be ample rain, especially in the region of Galilee. Again, since it is more of a desert climate, 
there in the spring with the rain, suddenly all these flowers would appear. And they'd be there, but ever so briefly. Then the hot heat would set in, the hot wind would arrive, the Sirocco quickly drying up and scorching the hillside and the surroundings. They're there one moment, they're gone the next. And for us, it's a little different in North Carolina. I mean, soon it's spring, everything blossoms, and what? It's green for quite a while. Maybe it helps us to think instead of the opposite, not spring, but the fall. Think of the leaves. Think of the way that the leaves all change in color. The, the shades of yellow, orange, and red, how beautiful they are, how they appear and they're radiant. But what happens the next day, it seems? They're brown, they dry up, they wither, they fall. The incredible beauty that's displayed. Such beauty, or then there with the flowers that he reasons. Not even Solomon could do something like this. To speak of Solomon and his wealth that was proverbial of the time. You can read in 1 Kings 10, Solomon, perhaps the wealthiest person who's walked this earth, Today, it would be like, think of Warren Buffett, think of Bill Gates, think of Elon Musk. And he says, with all their wealth and resources, they can't do anything compared to this scene, this production. And by the way, these flowers that bloom, they don't toil, they don't spin, they're not laboring. It's as if they do nothing, they just sprout and bloom. He even says, look at the grass of the field. It's alive today. Tomorrow, it's thrown into the furnace. Again, a setting where the grass would be green and then in the next instant, dry, dead, to be used as gathered up fuel in one's oven. You know, you think of it, it sounds a bit wasteful. No, no, this is the display of God's lavish, generous care. He says, oh, if he so clothes these flowers, if he so clothes the grass of the field, again, he says, how not much more will he clothe you? If he cares for the insignificant flower that blooms and withers, that sprouts and shrivels, he reasons, will he not much more care for and clothe you, his child? And again, he gets right to the heart of the issue. He calls us out. He says, you of little faith. That's the issue. That is uncovering what's going on. He, he doesn't say, you have no faith. He is speaking to believers here, but often in the Gospels, that description, little faith, weak faith, small faith, it's a term of disciples, but disciples who aren't thinking correctly. And that's what it is for us. 
We can be saved children of God, and yet for us to wrestle with anxiety, it's as if he says, you have momentary unbelief. Unbelief that Calvin would say it's the mother, a mother that brings forth children. How often worry and anxiety, it's not alone. It has some siblings, irritability, short-temperedness, despair, self-trust, self-reliance. He says, no, the issue is this little faith needs to grow and become strong faith. But how does strong faith become strong faith? He says, look at the object as the object that faith rests upon grows. In other words, as God becomes bigger, faith is nourished, faith is fed. There's more to see, there's more to trust, there's more to cling to. I can see my Father cares. Isn't that confirmed elsewhere in the Scriptures? Again, with this antidote, it's self-prescribed, self-administered. It doesn't just happen to us. Often, we're wrestling with these thoughts. We're unmasking these lies with truth that our thinking would be correct. Bringing to mind Psalm 55, 22. Cast your burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. Bringing to mind 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. You can think, you, you parents, you know, you know what it's like. All that you do for your child or children all the time, all the concern, all the sacrifice, all the hard work, all the thinking. Why? You love your child. You care for your child. You want them to be cared for. And what then would it be like for that child to turn, look you in the eye, and say, I don't think you really care. I don't think you really love me. I mean, how devastating would that be? Right to the heart that strikes us. How obviously false. How untrue. And yet he's telling us that is essentially what we proclaim to this God, when we go around and about with this issue of anxiety. Perhaps, though, you find yourself here this morning as a child, even a grown child, and when you say this, it's very well true. My father, my mother, my parents, they don't care. They're not in the picture. They don't have concern. The pain that that has brought, the turmoil that that brings, even a deep-seated struggle inside. 
To you, I simply say, behold, there is a father, a heavenly father. Oh, he knows, and he does indeed care. Jesus then tells us again, verse 31, do not worry. Do not worry. Saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? And he, he tells us, stop. Don't go down that path. See how God does care and he cares for you. He says, for you to go down that path and riddle yourself with those questions, you sound like a particular group of people. He says, you sound like a Gentile. What's a Gentile? Someone who at this time is outside the community of faith. Jesus' way of saying, unbelievers think this way. Unbelievers, it's natural for them. I mean, what else do they have? What else do they hope for? Their only focus is on this short, brief life. And he says it's natural for them, but it's not to be for you as my child. The antidote, he says, stop. Your father knows. See, your father cares. Third, and finally, he tells us, verse 33, seek Seek what? His kingdom, his righteousness. In fact, there's some intensity here. Seek first. He says, if you want to be consumed with something, if there's something you want to be anxious about, so strong, so life-changing, he says, take your life, your goals, your purpose, your chief end. It is to be different from unbelievers. Let now the all-consuming priority be to seek his kingdom and his righteousness. Jesus' way of saying, make it your ambition, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, to be pleasing to him. Seek to do his will. Seek to do what brings him glory. He says, each day you get up, you see this is a gift from God and press reset inside. With whatever the day brings, I will at least seek this, to honor my Father who has loved me and saved me. And we wonder what, what, what will happen. Do you see what he promises? All these things. What things? Why the things that we're often concerned about? All these things will be added to you. It's his way of saying, seek your father provides. Confirmed elsewhere in Scripture, Psalm 84, verse 11. The Lord is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from the one who walks uprightly. It 
so simple as John Brown, an older commentator, put it. He said, take care of God's interests. God will take care of yours. You know, time doesn't allow us. We could direct you to the account of the feeding of 5,000. You could look at it in Mark chapter 6. Big scene, 5,000 men. You add in the women and the children, maybe a crowd upwards of 20,000. The disciples are there, the 12 of them, they're concerned. How are these people going to be fed and cared for? We don't have any food. Jesus tells them, go gather up. The little boy comes forth, the five loaves of bread, the two fish. You remember the scene. Jesus, in his miraculous way, begins to feed and begins to care for them. But he tells his disciples, they're the ones who are to take and go and disperse the food to this large crowd. Again, back in the time, exposed to the elements, you're one of these disciples. Maybe you're passing out the food, you know, the bread and the fish. You're getting a little hungry. Maybe you're passing out. You're wondering, is it going to run out? I'm getting hungry too. Are my needs going to be cared for? But them following what Jesus commands. You come to the end of the account, Mark 6, 43, and it says, those disciples gathered up what was left over and they filled it into what? Twelve baskets. How many disciples are there? Twelve. What was provided? Twelve baskets. As if a very illustration of this very principle. The Lord provided for them in their need. I can ask, has anything changed? It's the same God. Jesus presses this home to us. We could say, though, okay, but that's today. What about tomorrow? Verse 34. Don't worry about today. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about the future. Tomorrow has enough cares of its own. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Keep coming back to stop. Your father knows. See, your father cares. Seek, your father provides. Again, as we began with Spurgeon's saying, honest words, soothing words for us to read here, difficult for us to put into practice. Yet Spurgeon would go on in that sermon to explain that Jesus himself, as he gives the most perfect, pure precepts, that his own life is the best exposition of them. He said, you may rest assured that he never gave us a command which he was not himself prepared to obey. He said, the service which he, Jesus, requires of us he himself shows us how to perform. Again, we're honest. You and I, we're often little faith. 
weak faith, stressed and anxious. We do well to behold the one who is the very captain of our faith, the one who has given us an example that we might follow in his steps. That even he, the son of God, in his humiliation in his earthly life, he had to depend upon his father. He, by faith, had to trust and live while he tired, while he hungered, while he thirsted. Didn't he himself say, the foxes, they have holes. The birds, they have nests. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Do we not see in his very earthly life his father caring, providing, knowing what he needed? Jesus, is as, it's as if he's saying the antidote works. But it all comes back to if we're going to begin to administer it. And as we said at the beginning, this antidote, it is exclusively for someone who is a child of God. Believers have access to these benefits. You find yourself here this morning outside of Christ, knowing I am not a believer. It is well and it is right for you to be anxious and to worry. But we would submit your worry and anxiety is misplaced. You're concerned about this life. What you ought to be concerned about is what happens after this life. Perhaps this morning, even to think of your anxiety and worries and fears, that that would be finally the prompt to bring you to your senses that today you would turn and trust in this Savior to save you from your sins. Because only then, welcomed into his family as his child, does he give this to help. Run to him then, that you might be saved. Father, thank you for these words. A timeless antidote that we so need now in the present. Take these words, minister them to our hearts, help us to overcome this ever-present issue of anxiety. For we are your children, and you, O Lord, are our Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.